The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. And a happy Friday to all our listeners and listeners' lands. This is In Tune. You're listening to Arnold Stricker and Ellie Wharton. Hey. I've been very fascinated uh, since we did a show on the first black ball players in yes. professional baseball. We all said Jackie Robinson, but it was actually a couple others, and even for the Cardinals and the Browns. So this first hour, what I want, I want to do is kind of give a little history of the Negro Leagues. And as I learn these things, I'm just flabbergasted at how many of the prominent Negro ball players were still around when I was growing up and still around when I was in college and still around when I got out of college and then they've started they started to pass away. So we're talking about guys like James Cool Papa Bell. Oh yeah. We're talking about Satchel yeah. Page. Right. We're talking about guys that have played a significant influence in the Negro Leagues. So and, and again, these are things that we don't hear about. No, we really don't. And as, as one of the things I talk about the show that I really like and one of the things I appreciate doing is this really serves a need for me. It is something I'm extremely interested in. I go down this rabbit trail like, oh, look at this. Oh, look at this over here. Oh, look at this over here. And I just follow that. And it, as it fills the, my need, I, I think it's something that I think I need to really give to the listeners because they, I don't hear about this stuff all the time. Right. And it does give us a different spin, a different perspective. I think it broadens our understanding and our appreciation for the areas that you're discussing. I know that you've brought so much information to me that I never knew, that I had never been exposed to. And, you know, I want our listeners in listener land to know that you really do a lot of research. And the thing of it is, is that it's information that I can use right away. The Negro League. What a very interesting group of men. I found a couple themes as I was reading through the material that there were black businessmen who were intimately involved in the teams with the team formation or team ownership or team transportation or team advertisements, things like that, black businessmen were very intimately involved. Matter of fact, when the league was formed, they just wanted black business owners to own the teams. So some of these teams were owned by white individuals and some of these teams were owned by black individuals. The other thing was that there was a struggle to, number one, field a team because you might not have enough players, you might not have enough people show up for the games, you might not have enough interest or, or the money would run out. And then people would often move from team to team quite a bit. There was a lot of movement, almost like checkers. There was a lot of movement from one team to another team. The other things were having a field. You had ah, to have a place yeah. to play. And in segregated communities, they may not even want the blacks to play on their fields. Correct, correct. So another thing was the money would dry up. And the other thing I found about this that I think was a common thing was that actually black, I'm saying Negro ball players were, because I'm saying Negro, I'm saying Negro because we're talking about the Negro leagues, that Negro ball players were paid, some of them almost equivalent to white ball players at the same time, which I thought was very interesting. Now that's interesting. Yeah, I did. And then there was this battle for power between teams and leagues. There really wasn't one league per se, there was multiple leagues. But they would vie and, and fight against each other for who was going to be the best and 
we have this player, we'll steal that player from you because they're a star and we'll get all the stars on a team, kind of like the Yankees did with George Steinberg. That's right, I was going to say, and, and that's different how? <laughs> yeah. Well, there are a lot of similarities between There are a lot of similarities. Isn't that what happens now? You think yeah. about it, you've got some guy that has a really, really good year, which I've never quite understood this part of it. You get a guy that has a really, really, really good year and then they trade him. And I'm like, well, why would you trade him when he's having that really, really good year? But I guess maybe he asked for too much money his or contract's running out. his contract is running out. So I would imagine the exact same things happened. You know, you've got you're trying to build a team. So you look for the better players. You go after them. You offer them a little more money. They move from one team to the next. And so some teams become superior. Other teams just kind of fall by the wayside. Yes, it's 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 really interesting. So what I want to do is go through kind of a history of the Negro Leagues and then talk about a history of the Negro Leagues here in St. Louis because we did have a Negro League team here, initially called the St. Louis Giants, which then fell by the wayside and became the St. Louis Stars. Okay. And believe it or not, they played, well, I don't want to give it away. You're going to have to hang on, folks. They played at a pretty prominent place that I think a lot of people pass by. We're just not aware of it. Amazing. But I'll make you aware of it. Okay. As long as you're... Stick but you got to stay tuned. You have to stay tuned in tune. I'm going to give you some names that you're probably familiar with. And these names pop up periodically. I'm not giving you all the big names, but names that are important in the St. Louis Negro League and important in the overall league. James Cool Papa Bell. Yep. He's got a, got a street name for him. Leroy Robert Satchel Page. Yes. I think they've got a street name for him here. Frank Leland. Andrew Rube Foster. Nat Strong. Believe it or not, Jesse Owens. Here in St. Louis? Not in St. Louis. Oh, okay. I was going to say, man. Okay. Buck O'Neill. And those are, those are some names. Uh, Bud Fowler. So, and we had previously talked about William Edward White and Moses Fleetwood Walker. Right. And Hank Thompson and Willard Brown and Tom Alston. Those are the, quote unquote, first William Edward White and Moses Fleetwood Walker who actually were the first black ball players prior to Jackie Robinson. Right, back in the 1800s. Right, and and also, albeit they were like in the International League or the not the American League, but minor league teams, but they were pros. And then Hank Thompson for the Browns, the St. Louis Browns, Willard Brown for the St. Louis Browns, and Tom Alston for the St. Louis Cardinals. So if we look at baseball, and baseball, everybody thinks it was uh, started kind of around the Civil War time, very similar for the for the Negro Leagues. And Philadelphia kind of became this hot spot for teams to play and individuals to come back from the war when they, when they played. And there was a guy named Octavius Cato, who was the promoter of the Pythion Baseball Club. He decided to apply for membership in the National Association of Baseball Players, which was normally you would send delegates to this convention. And at the end of the 1867 season... The National Association of Baseball Players voted to, get this folks, exclude any club with a black player. In some ways, black ball thrived under segregation with the few black teams of the day not only playing each other, but white teams as well. Black teams earned the bulk of their income playing white independent semi-pro clubs. So you have the formation, some of them were cricket players, some of them were, they came back from the war. They, they played like pickup games, and finally things started to get more organized and more organized. You had a black team playing a white team, and it wasn't a big deal until this decision voted to exclude any club with a black player, okay? So we see, and that's 1867. 
But you got to consider wow. right after the war. Yeah, right after the war. Okay, now we got Reconstruction coming, you know, or kind of kicking into gear. So the the baseball featuring American Af- African American players became professionalized by the 1870s, and there was a player named Bud Fowler. He appeared in a handful of games in Massachusetts, and we also mentioned Moses Fleetwood Walker and his brother Welday Wilberforce Walker. They were kind of the first two black players in the major league and the American Association. Then there was the International League. There were mergers also that happened. So there was a team maybe in Philadelphia and maybe a team in Pittsburgh and they would merge and well it had to it had to form first of all I mean it had to kind of get its roots and get its wind in order to be able to get its wings it, it really you know? did so the first nationally known black professional baseball team was founded in 1885 when three clubs the Keystone Athletics in Philadelphia the Orions of Philadelphia and the Manhattans of Washington DC merged to form the Cuban Giants <laughs> Wait, you got the Manhattans from D.C., you know, which you would expect the Manhattans to be from New York, but they were from, so the Manhattans from D.C., and the who else? We've got the Orions. The Orions, so we would have thought they would have been from outer space, but they they were from where? Philadelphia. Okay, so close to outer space. And then you had the who else? (laughs) The uh, Keystone Athletics. Okay, so now the Keystone guys, you would have expected them to be from like Montana. Right. Okay. And, but then they all come together to play the, what's the, what's the, the league? They, they formed, the Cuban. The, they formed the Cuban Giants. Now that is too funny. Now you got to understand about this name with the Cubans, okay? So the success of the Cubans led to the creation of the first recognized Negro League in 1887, the National Colored Baseball League. It was organized strictly as a minor league and was founded with six teams. So that kind of led to that. But this whole Cuban thing, the early Cuban teams were all composed of African-Americans rather than Cubans. The purpose was to increase their acceptance with white patrons as Cuba was on very friendly terms with the U.S. during those years. So we got black players posing as Cubans. Posing as Cubans. Go forward now to like the late 1870s, and you have Jim Crow beginning to rear its ugly head. And this was because of the Compromise of 1877. And I looked this up. The Compromise of 1877 was an informal, unwritten deal that settled a presidential election. Okay, the 1876 presidential election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel J. Tilden on the Democratic side. So what happened was there wasn't a complete electoral win. And so there was this compromise. And here was the compromise. It it stated that Southern Democrats would acknowledge Rutherford B. Hayes as president, but only on the understanding that Republicans would meet these demands. Number one, the removal of all U.S. military forces from former Confederate states. And they were only in, at that time, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida. The appointment of at least one Southern Democrat to his cabinet. Three, the construction of another transcontinental railroad in the South. Four, legislation to help industrialize the South and restore its economy. And five, here's the big one, the right to deal with blacks without Northern interference. What? So that is what propelled Jim Crow. You better believe it. And wait, and the thing is, is that it was voted on. It was approved. It was a compromise to allow Rutherford B. Hayes to be the president. So he would compromise the lives of millions of people 
so that he could be the president for what four years? All of eight the years? work. How long was I he president? Was four. I think it was for four. four years. He compromises the the life and the history of a group of people really forever. All of the work that had been done by Grant, and Grant wasn't a big wasn't a big reconstructionist, but he he was a big he was a firm. We got to do this. We got to do this. We right. Do this. But. It just went all for naught then. And then the South was pretty much, hey, we're going to do whatever we're going to do. That's right. And that's exactly what they did. And then Jim Crow comes in and. Exactly. So you have you have that now rearing its ugly head on on the baseball scene as as well as other things. But baseball is kind of what we're talking about. So in the late late 1880s, the Middle States League formed. Uh, around that time, Frank Leland uh, got some of Chicago's black businessmen to sponsor the Black Amateur Union Baseball Club. Teen, early 1900s, Andrew Rube Foster was a young pitcher, and he was hired. He was hired by the Cubans, the Cuban team. Not they weren't Cubans. Remember, they were blacks, and they were called Cubans. Around that same time, another name, Nat Strong, a white businessman, started using his ownership of baseball fields. In New York, uh, the New York area to become a leading promoter of uh, black baseball on the East Coast. Foster, when he joined the Leland Giants, Giants, remember Frank Leland, he had these teams. When he joined that team, he demanded he be put in charge of not only the on-field activities, but the bookings as well. So he turned them into a really powerful team. They were the one to beat. He was also able to turn around the business end of the team. Uh, by demanding and getting 40% of the gate instead of the 10% that real owner was getting. My so goodness. He was, he was very, very, very influential. There was another, another name, J.L. Wilkinson. He started the All-Nations traveling team. Remember, a lot of these teams, they traveled. Uh, they would do that. So in 1920, this is big, on February 13th and 14th in 1920, talks were held in Kansas City, Missouri that established the, Na- the Negro National League and its governing body, the National Association of Colored Professional Baseball Clubs. They had eight teams. The first game in that kind of group was May 2nd of 1920. The Indianapolis ABCs <laughs> beat the Chicago American Giants. The American Giants beat the, no, the, the ABCs. Beat the American Giants. Beat the DEFs. <laughs> the DEFs. The XYZs. The XYZs were still waiting in the wings, right? Right to Elemental P. <laughs> What's an Elemental P? <laughs> that's a team from from Tucumcari. Yeah, that's right. That's right. From Tucumcari. You know, so we got then the Negro Southern League forms. So now you see then the spurning of other leagues. You see the Negro Southern League form. You see the Eastern Color League form, which had six teams. You see the New Eastern League because the Old Eastern League folded. There was an East-West League founded. So you see all these things. As a matter of fact, in 1925, the St. Louis Stars came of age in the Negro National League. So the Stars were before the Browns. Yes. Right? But before the Stars were the Giants, and we're going to talk about them in a minute. Wow. There was uh, like a, the first all-star game of the Negro Leagues. And what was interesting about this is that Major League Baseball All-Star Games, uh, their, their way was the sports writers chose the players. But in the Negro League All-Star Game, the fans voted, mm. which is kind of what it is Today, now. that's right. right. Absolutely. So it was the East-West All-Star Game was held September 10th 
at Comiskey Park in Chicago, which was a major league park, before a crowd of 20,000 people. That's amazing when you listen to those numbers. I mean, back then, that was... Um, oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, same 20,000, same 20,000 today, but I mean, we're more accustomed to large venues right. than before. So when you start to think about 20,000 people coming out for a ball game, that's huge, that's huge especially when you don't have public transit, you know, when you're really relying on public transportation or everybody coming in their own mm-hmm. cart or horse or <laughs> buggy. Well, pretty or, much everybody lived in the cities then. Too. Well, that is true. So they probably walked. They, they probably walked. And you had interspersed here, you had World War One, you had World War II, uh, Buck O'Neill, who's a, a name... His big big name in Kansas City. You have Jesse Owens. Here's the Jesse Owens connection. In 1946, he partnered to form another Negro League, the West Coast Baseball Association. I thought that was very interesting. Hmm. But the white majors were barely recognizable during the war, while the Negro Leagues reached their highest plateau. Millions of black Americans were working in war industries, making good money. They packed league games in every city. Business was so good that promoter Abe Saperstein, famous for the Harlem Globetrotters, started a new circuit, the Negro Midwest League, a minor league similar to the Negro Southern League. The Negro World Series was revived in 1942, this time pitting the winners of the Eastern Negro National League and the Midwestern Negro American League. Continued through 1948. So it's really the foundation of what we have today, where you have the different leagues that play each other. Yes. And they kind of play off. Yes. Into the then the final two, mm-hmm. you know. But what's interesting about baseball that is in, that you don't get in football. Now in football, if you make it to the Super Bowl but you lose, you're absolutely the worst team in the whole league. But baseball seems to give honor to the first and second, whoever the winner is. They don't seem to dog the the loser. You notice that there's a real difference in, in attitude. There's a difference yeah. in, the, in the the type of players. You know, you notice that baseball players, you don't hear as many horrible stories about baseball players as you do about football players. You know, it seems like there's a very different philosophy, a di- very different environment and culture. Baseball, they you know they seem to be very gentlemanly, and yes. the fans are not the crazies. They don't go and burn up the town or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tip cars like the, over. Yeah, like the hockey fans. Oh my you gosh, know? it's crazy. The hockey fans or something else. But it is. It's a very different culture, and it always seems like what you're saying that even from the very beginning, it was founded on a on a higher level, on a, a higher level. ground. Yeah, that's a very interesting observation. So we have integration starting now during the mid-40s, and we all know about Jackie Robinson. We all know about Branch Rickey. He was the one who signed Jackie Robinson. He was doing that behind the scenes. He didn't want to interrupt what was going on. But what was the demise of the Negro League was this. When Jackie Robinson met with Branch Rickey in Brooklyn, he Branch Rickey gave him a test, and he berated him with racial epithets and Horrible kinds of things. And he did okay. So Robinson signed the contract, which stipulated that from then on, Jackie Robinson had, quote, no written or moral obligation to any other club. So by the inclusion of this clause, precedent was set that would raise the Negro Leagues as a functional commercial enterprise. So he couldn't go back and forth to another team. He was strictly signed to the Brooklyn Dodgers. Branch Rickey, he didn't want 
all of a sudden now Jackie Robinson gained some fame and go back to the Negro League. Right. He didn't want that happening. And he knew <clears throat> that he had actually other players that were a little bit better than Jackie Robinson. And matter of fact, one of them was, uh, let me get my names here straight, Josh Gibson, who played for the Monarchs. Actually, Josh, Josh Gibson was a catcher. Satchel Page was a pitcher. And they were a battery at one time. Wow. That was like the dynamic duo. I, I just found this very, very interesting. Here's a, here's a couple tidbits that you might find interesting, folks. The first Hall of Fame planned a separate but equal display. Oh, no. Don't tell me that. It sounds like the Supreme Court. Yeah. <laughs> so what they ended up doing, they were criticized, and Satchel Page insisted he would not accept anything less than full-fledged induction into the Hall of Fame. He Absolutely. was the first player, first black player inducted into the Hall of Fame. And so they got that going. Here's the other thing. Other members of the Hall who played in both the Negro Leagues and the Major Leagues are Hank Aaron, Ernie Banks, just to name a few. This is very interesting. Hank Aaron was the last Negro League player to hold a regular position in Major League Baseball. But Minnie Minosa was the last Negro League player to play in a Major League game when he appeared in two games for the Chicago White Sox in 1980. Sometimes what they did is they'd have them come on and maybe stand up there and take four pitches and go to first base and then I retire or something like that. He was the last Negro League player to play in a Major League game. Oh, okay. So here's another thing. In 1933, Pittsburgh Crawfords, that was their team, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, they restarted the Negro National League. That year, he introduced the East-West All-Star Game in Chicago, which became the sport's biggest annual event, attracting more than 50,000 fans at its peak. That was huge. That's crazy. That really is. And then the in 1959, this is 12 years after Jackie Robinson, the Red Sox became the last major league team to integrate with the addition of infielder Elijah Pumpsy Green. Wow. 1959? 1959. Wow. Okay. The Negro Leagues also integrated around the same time. So white players now started joining the Negro Leagues. Yeah. Eddie Klepp became the first white man to play for the Cleveland Buckeyes during the 1946 season. Now, there's a trivia question. That is a real good trivia question. Who was the first white player to integrate the Negro Leagues? Nobody will get that one. Now, I, I, I wish that we had some information on him as to why did he go into the Negro Leagues when he could have gone into the non-Negro League. Maybe he wasn't good enough. For the non-Negro League. He for the, was up for against the major su- leagues. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say he was a, up maybe, against some superstars when he went into the Negro or, Leagues. Yeah, well, yeah. And when you look at the stats, and maybe he was someone who wanted to integrate. It could be, yes. Maybe he was like, this is not correct. You know, who knows? Now, that would be an interesting one to check It would out. be an interesting, to, because from, from a legal standpoint, from the law of the land, mm-hmm. where segregation was legal... What would happen when a white person decided that they wanted to not be segregated in terms of being with all white people? That's a great question. You know, it's like segregation was always seen like we're going to keep the black people away from the white people. But what happened when the white people decided they wanted to be with the black people? That would cause a problem for the people who wanted to keep them separate. Right, exactly. So Kind of like today. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. Then they join musical bands. <laughs> That's what they become. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, music groups tend to be the ones they want to integrate and have all kind of people. But it's interesting to see that baseball has played a tremendous role in 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 furthering and fostering integration. And it, there were people along the way that went kicking and screaming. Yeah, sure. And Branch Rickey and there were a couple of people in the league really wanted to get it done after the war. They said, hey, if... If guys can fight together, and even in the war, they were fighting separately. Yes, absolutely. But they said if they can fight together, then they can play ball together. Now, when they traveled, did they have problems with traveling arrangements? Okay, did they have separate facilities, like separate? Bill White talks about that in his book, Uppity, where Ah. even for the Cardinals, matter of fact, he was the one that was instrumental in convincing Gussie Bush to have all the ballplayers stay at the same motel. Because it was, this is back in the early 60s, 61, 62, mm-hmm. I think it was, where the white players were all in one place and then the black players were in another. They couldn't even swim in the same swimming pool. So one year, he kind of pushed the envelope, Bill White did, he says in his book, Uppity, and they all stayed in the same hotel, motel, I should say, and then they all were playing in the same pool and people were like, I don't know what we can do here. And <laughs> the Florida, Florida laws were kind of weird back then, like... We can't do that. And Gussie Bush said, you know, we'll, we'll get out of here. We'll go play somewhere else. Right. We'll take our green and go somewhere we'll else. We'll take our green and go somewhere else. Now, did they have the same locker rooms? So everybody had? I believe so. But when they went on the road, they couldn't stay in the same, stay in the same hotel. They couldn't eat at the same place. They had to drop somebody off or get a carry out from someplace. It's been a rough That's the early 60s. Yeah. Well, again, you know, you still had... Colored drinking fountains, Absolutely. white drinking fountains. You still had Woolworths. Absolutely. You know, I mean, right here in St. Louis, you know, right here in good old Webster Groves. So if we had some time, I would talk about the St. Louis Stars, which actually originally were the St. Louis Giants. And the Giants were were kind of formed in 1906. The Stars took over uh, in 1921. But they played baseball at the corner of Compton and Market Street. Wow. And you know where Compton and Market yeah, is? Yeah, Compton. That's, that's kind of across the street from the uh, Chaffetz Arena. It's right at the corner of Harris Stowe. Right, exactly. That's where the ball field was. Matter of fact, there's a plaque there. Is it? Okay. And there was there's a picture at the Missouri Historical Society. They found one recently. They had never seen one. 